welcome to Financial Footsteps, Candid Conversations with Financial Leaders, the podcast that takes you deep into the minds of the masters behind the numbers. Join host Chad Dean as he connects with financial leaders as they share their journeys so that we can gain valuable insight from their failures and triumphs. Get ready for candid conversations, behind the scenes anecdotes, and practical wisdom that will transform the way you think about your career in finance. Put down the balance sheet and listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Financial Footsteps, where we explore the background and careers of financial leaders for the benefit of those who want to follow in their footsteps. My name is Chad Dean, your host. I've been a recruiter for 27 years, and I'm the owner and CEO of Integrated Management Resources, a Phoenix-based executive recruiting firm established 33 years ago. Integrated Management is the sponsor of this podcast today. Anybody who is a frequent flyer can see that our background is different than it normally is. We are in here very early in the morning, so we're all jazzed up on caffeine and coffee and super excited. (laughs) And I am super excited to introduce you to our guest today, Paul Bigby, who is the Chief Accounting Officer of Cavco Industries here in Phoenix. Paul has had a long career in accounting and is full of wisdom that I know will be incredible, incredibly beneficial to our listeners. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Chad. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So let's, you know, let's always start with the personal side and talk about just give me a little bit about where you grew up, your family, your hobbies, stuff like that. Great. So I, I grew up in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I went to high school, and then I moved to uh, Tucson, went to school at the University of Arizona. Bear down. For, uh, bear down, exactly. <laughs> After that, I moved up to Phoenix, and I've been here ever since, uh, since I guess, 1991. Awesome. So almost long, long enough to be uh, considered a native, right? And you have a family? Yes, I do. So I've got a wife and three children. I've got a 26-year-old boy, and then uh, my daughters are 22 and 24. Awesome. Fantastic. And any hobbies? What do you like to do when you're, I know you work a lot, but when you're not working, what do you like to do? I like to, I like to go hiking and uh, skiing. And I, I think with the uh, all the rain we're getting here, there's beginning some uh, good snow. We're going to go skiing this weekend. So that's what, that's probably my favorite hobby. Going to Flagstaff? Actually, Sunrise. Oh, even better. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> bit longer drive, so it's not as busy out right, there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. we. Uh, I've done a lot of skiing at Sunrise. Oh, okay. I've been so there. I've been there one time when there was so much snow, you you couldn't ski because you would sink. Oh, is that right? <laughs> it was, yeah, I had to stick my my head out of the side of the window when we were driving up because my my windshield just froze over. Oh wow! It was dumping snow like I've. You wouldn't think we're in Arizona, right? So anybody right. that's watching this is like, really in Arizona, but right. Arizona is an extremely diverse state in that yes. we have. 8,500, well, uh, Mount Humphreys is t- over 12,000. And, you know, and then we got the desert, which is just in, like last summer was incredibly hot. Well, that's what people don't think about Santa Fe either, is it's 7,000 feet. It's almost a, a sister city to flag. Yeah. And then the uh, ski area there is at 10,000 as a base, and the the uh, big mountains are 12,500, something like that. So Taos. Taos is good. That's about 90 miles from Santa Fe. Oh, is it that far? I yeah. didn't know that. One of the only places left that you cannot snowboard, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. Stick it to it. I'm good with that, too. <laughs> Love it. 
So, uh, so take us back to the genesis of your decision to make a career in accounting and finance or just what you were in school, you know, did you know before you went to U of A what you wanted to do? Tell us about that. No idea. So I started out at uh, U of A and I'd always been pretty good at science and math. And so I went into the uh, engineering program for mechanical and aerospace engineering. And that lasted about two years. I got through 15 units of calculus and uh, all kinds of uh, different things and decided this really wasn't for me. I was still doing okay in school and thought I'd go to the business program and, and just check out a you know variety of classes. I had a finance class, an MIS class, an accounting class. And the accounting just kind of came easy to me. It made sense. Made that switch from engineering over. Had to catch up on a lot of credits. It's a lot different. Engineering, you kind of sit in the class and everybody's sitting there with their pencil ready to go when the... <laughs> When the time comes and, and I go to this big uh, accounting class, there's about 500 people in a big studio there, and it takes a teacher about five minutes to get everybody to calm down and put their daily wildcat paper down and <laughs> get to work. So I was like, oh, this is a little lower key. I, can, I think I can take this. I was in that class because I, too, <laughs> went to U of A, and I started out electrical engineering. Going into electrical engineering, not good at math is not a is not a plan of success. <laughs> and so I found out very quickly I was not good at math, and I dropped that's out. A, that's a tough, yeah, that's tough of that program. And uh, and then I remember taking accounting one hundred and one and how big that class was. Yes, <laughs> it's funny, and I really enjoyed it. I I liked accounting. It's not my gig, but but I really enjoyed that class. It came also easy to me, and a lot of people say it's super hard for me. I got to eat one of the easiest days I ever had because I just understood the, you know, reporting and understood balance sheets and income statements. And that's yeah. really all accounting 101 is, it. right? <laughs> so, so actually, I want to ask you about that. What is the difference between engineering students and accounting students? Do you remember back then? Is is there a difference? Yeah, I think it was night and day, right? <laughs> what is the difference? So, you know, I, I think the engineering students were a little more... Um, I would say uh, focused and a little more introverted, whereas when you get in that business classes, it's more of a extroverted group and people and that sort of thing. So, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So your degree on your LinkedIn says accounting slash finance. What what was the degree technically? So it was both. So after engineering, I had a, I had to go basically three years, so it extended my my uh, schooling a year. And so it was only like nine extra credits to get a finance degree. So I can, that was kind of the extra semester. I could have done it in four and a half, but I figured, you know, the advantage of having both would be great. And so that was the, that was the plan after the uh, engineering kind of went, went by the side and, and it actually saved me one time. So I, when I was taking the CPA exam, uh, you go through your, well, this is old school. So some people won't remember it, but it used to be four parts. And on the practice part, you have essays. And uh, here I am going through the multiple choice, not feeling great about it. And I get to the problems. And the first one is a 10-point problem out of 100 on time value of money. So with my finance degree, it took me about two minutes to do it. And I was able to, mm -hmm. to somehow fumble through the rest and, and get a 75, which is what you need to pass. Fantastic. So there <laughs> you go. That extra semester helped you out, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Tell me, did you do any internships when you're in school, or or anything while you're in school, or did you just go through your classes and then? Yeah, go so straight I, into I work? Didn't, didn't do any internships. Uh, 
I had a job. I worked at a golf course. So Which one? Silver Bell. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked there for four years, and so it kind of took up all my time, but it was great because I could do homework a lot and, uh, you know, while I was working, and, uh, yeah, it was free golf and everything else was good, so. Fantastic. I was lucky. I, I was playing over at the uh, at Randolph, the oh, public course. That, yeah. So. Well, yeah, that was great. <laughs> it was <though>. cheaper. <laughs> so you graduate. Did you have – so your first job was with PwC, right? Correct. Yep. And did you – when did you find out you were going to get that job? Was it your junior year or your senior year? So senior year, uh, it was like September – and I rode my bike over to Old Main and, uh, you know, had my interview there. I think I had, I've interviewed with all the, it was big six back then. And I interviewed with all of them. And this was, I think PwC was the second one. You know, it was great. You know, I had in my pick of three or four and, you know, PwC seemed to be the best fit. And uh, so that that's the one I selected. And you were there quite a long time. Uh, 14 and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. Long time. And what were the changes that you saw over those 14 years? It's just, not, it's just amazing. So it started out, you know, kind of basic accounting, what you do, and then Sox took over, right? And when Sox took over in 2002, uh, it changed the whole landscape of what we did and, you know, the uh, basically putting the onus on management and also the audit committee and the board and opening, uh, you know, different avenues for them to be more accountable for, for the numbers and having to, to, to really – take responsibility and also consequences if there are bad things that are happening that uh, they should know about, but maybe they don't. What did you guys feel at PwC from the fallout of Arthur Anderson? So that was, yeah, you know, that was a really tough one. And we gained in Phoenix because we lost, they lost all their clients and we got about three or four of their really big clients. So for us, it was, you know, we feel bad for the, for the industry and all the people that you knew that you went to school with that, you know, about that time, all that, that fallout, you know, I was about a 10 year person. So, you know, 15, 12, somewhere in there. And the people that I'd gone to school with that went to Anderson were up for partner. You know, I knew one person that had just paid his buy-in and then it goes to nothing and, and they get nothing. So, you know, except their big loan that they took out to buy their way in, right? So, you know, it felt bad from, you know, from that perspective that, you know, now I think it's, they they joke, it's the final four, right? There can't be any more mergers because you get antitrust issues. And so it was, uh, it was certainly an interesting time. Where did PwC rank in those six at that time? It depends how you look at it. We were, I think we were five as far as revenues. And uh, number of clients, we, you know, so I was actually the Coopers and Librand side prior to the, the merger. And so there was a Price Waterhouse side. I think they were six and we were five. So you put the two together and we we're pretty big. They had more of your blue chip, IBM, Intel, you know, the really large companies. We had some of those. AT&T was one of our big ones. Fidelity was our big one. We owned Boston where all the all the Fidelity offices are. You know, from that perspective, it was, you kind of had the big six and then you have everything else and everything else, even below the big six was so far down the road. It was, it was really, uh, you know, a different, different landscape. Gotcha. When you, <laughs> this is a strange question, but during the, the blow up of Enron and everything and, and the spotlight that was put on public accounting, did people give you the, 
was it different at cocktail parties when you said, hey, I'm in public accounting? Did everybody say, oh, really? <laughs> like, what was that like? You know, no, if, you're, if you're not in the business, uh, you know, arena, you don't really get it. So not that many people understood. I, I guess I would say some people understand public accounting and what that means and what you do and that you're involved in that whole thing. But if you're not, you don't really uh, so I would say it wasn't, uh, you know, you didn't get too many of those head shaking or what are you doing or that kind of thing. So okay. I just, it came to my mind. I was wondering <laughs> if, if anybody thought, you know, if anybody said anything to you. So, so let's go back to your first year, way back to your first year. year where, so you joined, it was Coopers and Libra, not, not PwC. Correct. Okay. So when you first joined, tell me about that first year? And do you feel that your education prepared you for that experience? So I would say yes and no. So the first year was really interesting. It started out with a two-week boot camp, if you will, in Los Angeles. And they had most of their clients from Orange County and LA and Phoenix and Denver. And so there was, I don't know, maybe 250 of us. And so you kind of go through two weeks of pretty hard, you know, pretty much eight to six, that kind of thing. Not awful hours, but as that was to come, <laughs> and so um, you know, it was a, it was a really, I would say, school prepared me for the background that you need to do it, but most everything I learned was on the job, right? How you do things, you understand the basics, you need to know debits and credits and what you're kind of doing, and you know, a lot of the more technical aspects, but as far as what you're what you're doing, how you audit, how you document work papers, how you deal with the clients, how you do interviews, all that kind of thing. You, you, it was really on the job training, which was great. Gotcha. And they move you into management fairly quickly, right? That's the that's the thing about public accounting that you know you pay your dues, you work a lot of hours, you get paid okay, you have good benefits. I would never say a bad thing in in the in the world about. Uh, public accounting and and uh, Coopers and Libran, which then became PwC, just because exactly what you said, you get that opportunity to be a manager at a very young age. So two years out of school is uh, was basically the track. You become senior associate, with, which means you are the person at the clients on the on site, with being the number one contact to the client, dealing with CEO, uh, generally CFOs and controllers. And you have three or four or five, six, depending on how big the job is, people reporting up to you. So at, at two years, you're really kind of learning to how to be a manager. And, uh, you know, you got a lot of bright people working for you and, you know, you're, you're dealing with the clients. So you get both of those managerial type roles as well as, uh, you know, to see ability to deal with, uh, you know, all the high level people at the, at the organization. My impression of management in the public accounting arena is a lot like I think of the military, where, you know, you just automatically are obligated to do whatever the person above you says and work as many hours, you know, as, <laughs> as you need to. And and I think it's more of a military. This is my impression. I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. It's more lockstep, like you move from private to this and that and you move up versus the industry itself where, and maybe it's more so now, but management now, you, there's a lot of emotional intelligence involved and it's just a whole different animal. Is, is that back in your day when you were with P, PwC, is that an accurate 
depiction of the way it was? A- absolutely, right? So you start as an associate. In two years, you're expected to be a senior. Five years, you're supposed to be a manager. Eight years, you're senior manager. And then, you know, partners somewhere between six and eight years after that. So, yeah, that's exactly how it works. Because in the, in, in the regular world, industry world, your growth, I mean, obviously, you're not going to get promoted at PwC if you're not doing a good job, but it just seems like it's not as lockstep in industry right. as, it, as it was. That yeah, no, some. certainly not. I mean, when I got to industry, it was so different than, you know, knowing what your next role is. And, and you know, I still deal with that today. So I have people that I hire that are out of big four and, you know, they are asking, what's my track? When When's my next promotion? And and you got to really explain to them there's several different avenues. It's not like public accounting where everybody's kind of doing the same. You're doing different things, but it's the same program and it's the same really kind of progression. Whereas in uh, you know accounting at, at our company or any of the companies I've been to, really, it's completely different from a progression standpoint. But you know there's still certainly tracks you can go down. How was your first experience as a manager? Were you good at it? No, <laughs> it probably wasn't, right? So you learn and, you know, I think, you know, one of the one of the things that was really a good learning experience is you do learn to deal with it, but you have to give difficult, you have to have difficult conversations. You have them with the client, you have them with your staff, you have them with your bosses, right? And so, you know, back then it, it, was, uh, it was great to just kind of take it all in and say, okay, well, I know this is new to me. What can I do to listen and figure out what these smart people are telling me to uh, to really take and pass on to others? So that was uh, really how I saw that. When I moved from public accounting to industry, everything that I learned at Cooper's Librand PwC really was was really. Then when you say your question about schooling and how much did you learn for your first job? Well, when I learned, at, you know, and left at 14 years went into a financial reporting role at Starwood, large public company at the time. And, uh, you know, it was just everything I had learned was just everything I needed. There was no more on-the-job training. So, Got you. So that 14 years was really important in your career. Yeah, completely. How many times did you think about leaving in that 14 years? Gosh, I would say, you know, I was pretty well uh, tuned in. As you start getting older, right? So after you've been there, you know, five years and you're a senior, you become a manager. You say, okay, I want to do this for a couple of years. And then if you leave as a couple of year manager, you're, you know, you're going to get really good jobs, right? So then if you stay to be on the senior manager, you're like, well, maybe I ought to do this a couple of years, right? And then so it continued to, to really kind of build down that different levels. And so, you know, I felt like, you know, I'd been there. Uh, I think at about 10 years, kind of look around a little bit, 12 years, maybe look around a bit. And then 14, I was really headed down the partner track and I uh, had a great opportunity that came to me from the director of uh, accounting uh, of personnel that we had at Cooper's Library. I went to work for Starwood and called me up one day. I usually don't take those calls, but since I knew the guy, we, you know, we chatted and uh, it was just a, a really great opportunity to move on. So if you had only an accounting degree and didn't do that extra finance work, do you think you would have gotten an FP&A role at Starwood? I could have. You know, I think yeah, I would say accounting is a little bit more specialized. So the way I look at it is you can have a controller, a, you know, chief accounting officer that can do FP&A. 
it's hard to have an FP&A person that can do accounting, right? Because FP&A is analysis, Excel, you know, looking at uh, different values. And it's a really great job and it's a great skill and it's really needed. Whereas accounting is more of a specialized field, you wouldn't necessarily go from the the FP&A skill set without having the accounting background. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the way I look at it, you know, the, the controller is really the messenger of the business and they're really telling the story and, you know, that's important skills. But, you know, FP&A, on the other hand, is is great, too. I always say FP&A is the best friend of the C, uh, CFO because the CFO wants to know data that controller is not going to have it at his fingertips. FP&A is really good at that. So I remember when I was at Starwood, we had five international divisions. One was Asia Pacific, and he would say, okay, or I'll use, yeah, China was part of that division. And he would say, okay, I want to need to, I need to know the rev par of all of our hotels in the tertiary cities and then compare that to the large cities. So they get into a lot of detail that the CFO was just, that's what he wanted to know. And I've seen that time and time again. They are, the, the, the CFOs aren't as concerned with the financial uh, accounting guys, but their FP&A, that's, that's, their, uh, that's their thing. Right. So do you, do you feel that that makes certain, maybe a chief accounting officer not feel as good if they're not as close to the CFO? Or <laughs> is there any friction there? No, not at all. They kind of do their thing and we do ours. Okay. Um, I never felt that way. And, you know, it was unique at Starwood is our corporate office was in Stanford, Connecticut, and we had the worldwide accounting function here in Scottsdale. So we had about 270 really, really bright people with, you know, 40 CPAs on the staff. And it was, you know, GL, consolidation, financial reporting, audit, and tax was all housed here with our CFO in, well, first it was White Plains, New York, and then it was Connecticut. And he had his FP&A team there with him in uh, in, in Stanford because that's where he wanted them. He wanted to be able to walk down the hall and say, this is what I need and kind of need it now. So Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So I already let you know I was going to ask you this question, but tell me about what happens to a company if they lose, let's say it's just a small company. What happens to a, a company if they lose their FP&A head or team Versus if they lose their controller, what's the difference? So the difference is, you know, the controller, as I mentioned, is really the messenger of the business. It keeps track of all your resources. Uh, is there safeguarding over, you know, even think of it simply, is there safeguarding over cash? Is it payroll getting paid to the correct people in the correct amounts? And are payables going to the vendors in the correct amount? And is cash being received? So these are all things that really have to happen. And in order to, to make sure you safeguard your assets and have proper, um, you know, totals of different amounts, whereas FP&A would be, okay, well, uh, your cash came in, it was a million dollars and 675000 was from China and this much was from, say, you know, New Zealand, Australia, so all the different pieces. So they, they would probably break it down more, I would say, and look at more of the details. But without the accountants, you're not going to be able to really have a, a place to start. Well, so if the CFO walks out and the controller is gone and payroll didn't get paid, um, what's the FP&A guy going to do? Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> is he going to be able to go in and, and do the payroll? Probably yeah, not, right? Probably not. <laughs> but if the controller's there, he can maybe throw together a quick spreadsheet and, and do some calculations, right? Yeah, so, exactly. And you have to pay your employees and you got to pay your vendors and that's going to be from accounting. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to collect the cash and that's accounting. And so. what about all the, uh, you know, liabilities that you have out there as far as bank relationships and stuff like that? They want reporting and Absolutely. all that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So is there a particular experience that you had? I mean, we really delved into PwC and how that prepared you for industry and you walked into Starwood and you felt very competent. Are there any other um, specific roles that you feel catapulted you into the chief accounting officer at such a large organization? Is, are there any roles that really stick out to you? You know, I would say it was really the... Uh, time I spent at Starwood. So I was at Starwood for about 12 years. My first seven years, seven or eight years was in financial reporting. So all the 10Qs, 10Ks, 8Ks, uh, debt deals, S3s, I'll stop giving acronyms here, but they're all SEC reporting items that we have to do for uh, being a public company. You've got so certain periodic reports you've got to do. And then you, when you do debt deals and things like that, you... Uh, you know, have uh, extra filings to do. So I think, you know, the skill set I learned is when I went from from public to Starwood, you really, you really don't, you, you know, you've done accounting for 14 years, but you haven't had the nuts and bolts of the GL and things like that. So you kind of learn that. But the things you're doing as far as evaluating different accounting issues, doing your research, documenting it, and accounting memo, all that stuff was the same. So really, you know, the differences were, you know, it, it, I felt like, you know, being in that role for seven years, you see a lot of things and you see different industries and you see, uh, you see all parts of the business, right? So you're getting the money from overseas, you got your forward contracts to hedge your euro exposure and different things like that. And so, you know, from just that aspect, having such a large public company with so many different pieces was really a great learning ground because some, something was different every day. It was, Starwood wasn't a hotel company. They were a diversified company called ITT. Well, they were acquired by Starwood. It was kind of David and Goliath, right? It was, it was, uh, ITT was huge. It was a $2 billion acquisition and they turned that into Starwood was a 25 hotel company. So overnight it had 600 hotels and all the other things that ITT had. They had gaming operations. They had, you know, things that, that we had to sell off. And then they also had a lot of joint ventures, land deals. And so not things that you would normally see at a, a hotel company, strictly like a Hyatt or a Marriott. That really changed the complexities of what we did and the accounting issues that we really uh, encountered. Gotcha. So then you went into audit. Were you tapped for that? Did you, were you driven to go into audit? Tell me about that. Yeah, so you, you kind of do the financial reporting for a number of years. And I kind of got us through 08 and 09, which is really interesting times. And, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what uh, impairments we had. And, you know, we had impairments in our timeshare because we had timeshares that we sold in Florida. And we had all these sales centers that weren't selling homes anymore. And so we said, is the value recoverable? And no, it wasn't. We had goodwill on the books for when we bought the timeshare company. And so, you know, a lot of that exposure was things that we did and we had to report on it. And, you know, after I think it was about 2014, I'd done financial reporting for my entire career at Starwood. And I talked with a, a 
buddy of mine who's chief accounting officer, and he convinced me that I should go into the audit role just to see a little bit closer of, of how the hotel operates and, and things like that. So I, I moved over in, into internal audit at Starwood for, and, you know, that was a really the, we had four directors and uh, my area was corporate and uh, timeshare. Gotcha. And then you went to senior director, corporate finance and accounting. So what's the difference of, of that role? So after I'd been uh, in audit for about a year, I was actually uh, promoted to the um, global internal audit leader. And so I had about 28 people on my team, some in Singapore, some in Brussels, and then the rest in the U.S. After that, we were purchased by Marriott. So that was a big, uh, big change in what would happen. And, you know, as people were kind of leaving, I was, was, uh, you know, able to stay on for about a year and a half after the deal closed to do different things and help with the integration. With my, uh, you know, internal audit background and financial reporting, it seemed to be the things that, you know, were transitioning over to the new company. And so, you know, I was able to assist in that. As a result of that, I had some other uh, duties that came on as people were leaving. One was controller of the sales and marketing fund. It's about a billion-dollar fund. And, you know, the way that works is all the hotels put in a certain amount of money into this big pool, and you know, people are spending all this advertising. So it's about a, about a billion dollars. Interesting, um, interesting role. So that was it. Was really kind of a, a, a you know an ancillary deal. wasn't part of really what I did core, but I did do that for about a year and a half. You had a, such good tenure, right, at these two different firms. What is it about you that you got tapped continuously for for more and more responsibilities? What do you attribute that to? You know, I think it's 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 hard work. Uh, you know, a lot of it it it, it doesn't come easy. Uh, maybe for people smarter than I, it does. But you know, it always seemed to me if you worked hard, and you understood what you were doing, you put your time in, things become easier. And the other thing was taking opportunities just to learn a new skill set. Like when I went to internal audit, it's kind of kicking and screaming a little bit, right? But then I just said, I'm going to use this to um, you know be an opportunity just to get another feather in my cap. Learn, learn how to do something new. So, uh, and and that was a great learning tool because when I went over there, then you're doing, you're not doing debits and credits, you're doing more discussions with senior management on, you know, what are, what are the things that keep them up at night? What's kind of an enterprise risk management, right? ERM, you're talking about, you know, strategic really things the company's doing. And remember the first time we're going through these discussions, you sit down with the CFO and say, what, what keeps you up at night? What are the things you're worried about? I was about to jump out the window after about a 20-minute conversation. <laughs> I'm like, wow, the sky's falling. <laughs> but it was really eye-opening to see that this is what people at that level think of. And, you know, it's not just, okay, here are all the things we're going to do. It's like, here's what can happen bad. So, you know, we really went, went through the whole likelihood and magnitude. You know, is it going to happen? And if it does, how bad is it going to be? And, uh, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, I did initially. And it was really, you know, I think it really broadened my scope from just really accounting and financial reporting to really how does the company operate? What are the things they think about at the senior levels? And, you know, how do I fit into this piece? Gotcha. And then you went to uh, do more audit, right, at Caesars? At Caesars. So, I, you know, after the, the Starwood time, yeah. It's kind of unique. I, I love hospitality. It's kind of in my DNA. When I was at PwC, I had gaming clients, and it was unique. There was a public gaming uh, company based here. They used to be Ramada, 
and they sold uh, they owned Marie Calendars and Ramada. They sold off the hotels and the pie shops, and they kept the gaming entity intact. And that was one of our clients. So I had clients in uh, Atlantic City and Las Vegas and Laughlin. So I really had that accounting background. That was kind of my expertise was was uh, gaming companies. So when I you know was looking for something after uh, Starwood. You know, the opportunities with Starwood were, were all in uh, Bethesda for the most part, and that really wasn't in the cards for us. So, you know, gaming uh, opportunity came up, and it was something that I'd really enjoyed at PwC. It was by far my favorite uh, client and was on that client for 12 years. It was a natural progression. Yeah, this is something I already know, you know. And so I think that gave me a leg up on getting that job as well was the experience that I'd had. And uh, so it was, uh, that was a good fit. That's how I got there. Um, what what was it like going, you know, f- like fourteen years, fourteen years, and then interviewing again? Yeah. <laughs> what did did you know the people you were interviewing with, or did you have to go in and actually execute real well? Like what what was that like? Uh, when I went to Caesar Caesar's, yeah, it was starting it over again, right? It was um, it wasn't that it wasn't as bad as I thought because I only interviewed for about two or three jobs and this was the third one it was it was the best fit so it wasn't like a shotgun approach I was really selective um, I had time I, I could have stayed at, at Marriott you know longer if I needed to after about a year and a half it was I you know there wasn't you know a whole lot left to do but there was still a need for you know doing certain things but I was pretty selective and I can only remember about three companies I uh, interviewed with for, you know, that next role at uh, Caesars. Gotcha. So what advice would you give to someone that's interviewing for their first leadership position? What what would you tell them? So I, you know, I, I think for leadership, you want to talk about really three pillars. So you want to talk about your people. You want to talk, you know, obviously that's going to be your number one key, but then you got to have your focus on just your basic uh, background, and then you know what you see um, really strategically as far as what you want to do with your team, you know your relationship with your peoples, and how will that translate into the uh, business and what the company needs. Mm-hmm. So it's really really taking your people skills, demonstrating that you have the, that ability, you've done it before, uh, you've had success at it. Give examples, you know, probably of of what you've done and. Have you seen, you know, our, the way I always measured how I was doing with teams was seeing my people and how well they were doing. And if they're being promoted and they're being highly thought of, then I like to think that I, you know, I had something to do with that. Not not uh, all uh, entirely 100%, but you certainly, you know, to me, that was my measuring stick. So when you interview, if you're thinking about, you know, how you want to demonstrate this, you want to, you know, that's a, one area you may want to look at is, is, you know, the people that you've managed, how are they doing? You know, were you able to, to, you know, kind of bring them along, push them in the right direction? Mm-hmm. So maybe think of a question. What do you think, what do you think leads to low attrition within an organization? So I, you know, I th- you know it's, it's unique that it's a, it's a great question because at my, and I'll jump ahead to Cavco. We, you know, we've got, you know, 31 manufacturing facilities and, you know, probably 4,500 factory workers. And, you know, it's hard work, it's labor, it's, except for probably one or two locations, there's no climate control. So, and, you know, you're working pretty hard, long hours and, you know, not the best conditions. And so there's attrition there, 
but we see it more at the zero to six month person. Once, once if somebody makes it six months, they're going to be there for 15 years, right? Is what we've seen. But a lot of people figure out, okay, this is a job. I, I've, I've got my college degree or my GED and that's what I need and give you a hammer and they figure out that's not what they want to do. So we see that attrition at the lower levels until people have been there a while. And they decide, and you know, we're doing things to, to fix that. We've got different, what we call the master of the craft program, where we are teaching people how to do a roofer, how to do electric, you know, be an electrician, an electrician, how you be a plumber, and just things that you know, as homes go down our assembly line, people can do different things and you know, see a career rather than just um, you know, a laborer. So gotcha, doing things like that. What about in accounting and finance? You stayed fourteen years. What do you think kept you at these organizations that long? PwC was great because you just keep learning. You basically get paid to learn your entire life because you're learning new things, new skill sets, new accounting pronouncements. You know, things that are coming out, are and they happen all the time. It's just, you know, you continue to learn, which was, I think, what kept me at PwC. And then when I went to Starwood, you know, it was um, it was just a great environment. Uh, you know, like I said, we had really bright people. There was... You know, all the different facets of accounting were there, all the different types. And, uh, you know, it's just a really young, bright, highly motivated people. And that really drew me to uh, Starwood, not to mention the hotel benefits. <laughs> right. Yeah, benefits are good, right? <laughs> yes. So it was so at Starwood, it was the people that you were working with that kept you motivated and, and interested in staying there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so and that has to do with the culture. Too, right it's it's also a cultural thing a culture and you know culture was important there right and I, I think of culture in three ways it's it's who we are what we do and how we do it right and you know we we're really um you know we we're stewards for a public company that's a big thing you just uh it's not your money it's not it's shareholders money right so when we're you know we have to be good stewards of the resources and things we're spending we have to be good stewards to tell the story correctly and so these are important things. And so, I, you know, what, what we try to do is, is, is really convey that to our associates, that this is bigger than just your accounts payable rec or your bank rec. Whatever you're doing is, is really part of the whole. And so, you know, we really say that that's who we are. And then, you know, what we do is, is uh, we tell the story. And how do we do it? Well, integrity and ethics, really, is, is really what we try to convey to our teams and get people to kind of buy into that because that's at the end of the day, you know that's really that's really the job is 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 really telling the story, telling it correctly, and and making sure you have a lot of integrity in in what you're doing. Awesome, that's so. I love that. that <laughs> I love that, and and I love that you have three things lined up, and and you've obviously you live by that, so that's fantastic. What do you look for in someone that you're interviewing? Are there any specific questions you ask, and what what do you look for when you're looking to hire somebody? Now, now I'll get uh, to to give my uh, thanks to public accounting. So, you know, that's the best training ground in the world. First thing I look for is did this person work at one of the big four accounting firms? And if they do, I'll look and I'll I'll know how long they stayed. I'll know what level they did, and I'll understand from my experiences what they've done, what they know, and what they don't know. Just from that one thing on the resume that says PwC, KPMG, Deloitte, EY, whatever it is. And to me, that that is, uh, you know, you can't get people trained better. So, I'll, like I said, I'll, I'll, you know, give thanks to public accounting forever. Long hours, but you're going to get the best training in the world. And when I look for people, that's what I look for. 
depends what role, but when you're corporate controller, you know, any of the levels really, that, that to me is, uh, you know, we've had great successes with that. So, Do you look at somebody different if they left after two years versus after four years? No, not really. If they stayed a year, then you kind of may ask some questions about it. But, you know, two years on, it's it's really a, you know, things happen and, and you know, some people want to stay longer or opportunities come up. You know, less than a year, a year or less, you start to wonder. But other than that, it, it's just different uh, different timetables, fine for everybody. Right? Is there a, a rule a client can't hire away from their public accounting firm? Depending on the type of the level of person. So, like, if, if I wanted to go to a client, you know, there had to be a lot of vetting and you couldn't be redoing stuff that you couldn't be doing stuff you audited or vice versa, if you were if you went from the client to the accounting firm, you couldn't audit what you'd been doing before you left. And so there are limitations. You can do it, but there are limitations on what you can do for a period of time. Because um, I'm sure they're getting job offers every other day. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're calling, as recruiters, we're calling people in, in public accounting all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so if you I'm can, sure you see that too, right? The, oh, yes. Everybody yeah. wants somebody from... Uh, from big four right. and then, or we'll take somebody, you know, that at one of the, the second tier firms. Original. Yeah. But uh, everybody wants that. And there's just flat out, not enough of them. Right. And, you know, there was a big draw recently into private equity, private equity over the last three, four years absorbed a tremendous amount of people that might otherwise have gone into public accounting. And so you look at the big four, they're mm-hmm. doing a lot to keep their staff. They're they're giving a lot of bonuses, retention bonuses, trying to keep these people because oh, wow. A, industry's always wanting to, to take them. And then the private equity world took a whole bunch of people. Now, obviously that's reversed. Rates went up and that really changed the private equity VC landscape. But if you could go back anywhere in your career um, or anything in the beginning, is there anything that you that you would have done differently? You know, I've I, I thought about this a little bit, and you know, I, I you know, you had bumps in in the road and uh, different things. And probably the only thing I would do is would be more things that I've learned later on in my career. Never be afraid to ask questions in the beginning because you can't ask enough, and you can't ask enough in those first six months. Because if you're asking, if you're doing what you're doing, and you can kind of fumble your way through, uh, you know, an audit following the part of your work papers, but if you don't understand what you're doing, you start asking these questions in a year, a year and a half, then that's a problem. So, you know, I would encourage everybody to just to, to don't be afraid to do that. And, you know, the other thing I learned was to, to look at different things, different angles. A lot of times, uh, you know, I would be laser focused on this is the way it is. And I had a hard time receiving other people's views. And, you know, to me later on in, in my career, sometime at PwC, I learned that you got a lot of smart people around you and they got different ideas. So instead of just being laser focused on what I thought, you know, I think the other change I would have made sooner is just really uh, collaborating more and, and listening more to what people said uh, and and their ideas instead of just sitting there waiting for them to finish so you can talk more about how great your idea is. <laughs> that's key. Yeah. Listening, yes, that's what the what's that thing? God gave us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so I want to delve into this more. So you're a leader, and you have a junior person walk into your office, and they want to ask you a question, but they have apprehension to ask you that question because they don't want you to think that. 
that they don't want you to feel that they don't know what they're doing or that they haven't been trained properly? How do they get over that anxiety of asking a question? You know, I think the the way it is is how you approach it, right? So when they come in and they ask you a question, if you really try to put yourself back in their shoes when you were that new to something, right? Maybe they're doing a stock, uh, you know, compensation, reconciliation, whatever they're doing, they haven't done it before. And so, you know, I really try to just start from the basics and think, okay, well, let's set the table in a way that, you know, we can make it uh, really uh, bite-sized and make sure they understand really what we're doing and then why we're doing it. So, you know, I think it's just more, you know, really starting at a novice level so they don't feel challenged. Make sure you can get on a level playing field with with them and what they're understanding and then try to, then it'll give you a better idea of, of where, they're, where they're getting hung up and uh, and then you can kind of dig into that. So I think it's, it's more that initial uh, really, you know, setting the table and figuring out where they're at. So let's put you back in their shoes, okay? And you have, this is purely hypothetical. I don't know if it happened or not. You have PwC senior manager. You're one year in, and you have a question that you want to ask that person, but you're anxious to do it because you don't want them to feel that you don't want them to look at you like you don't know what you're talking about. And maybe that person has that aura about them, but maybe it's just imaginary in that junior person's mind. How do they overcome that anxiety? So think of you back as a year one person. Is there any advice you could give to somebody like that? Yeah. You know, I, like I said earlier, it's, it's on the job training and so it's expected, right? I mean, that's the culture. The culture is you're, you're being taught from your manager or your senior, and then you kind of become your senior and then you work for different managers and you kind of, you know, pick up what they're doing. So I, you know, I think there was never, you know, kind of the message I've been trying to give here is that you really can't ask enough good questions or you can't really ask enough. And if you don't understand, well, that's kind of the culture there. So you're really, it's it's not, you know, unexpected that you would be asking questions of somebody. Good. And so they're pretty receptive to it and they kind of understand the pyramid and how it works with, uh, you know, at the beginning and you get, um, you know, coached up as you go, as longer you stay. Gotcha. So you already answered one of my other questions is what would you go back and tell your younger self? So you, you just nailed that. But Somebody that wants to achieve your title, chief accounting officer, CAVCO's publicly traded. That's a very important role. What would you tell somebody earlier, early in their career that wants to achieve the chief accounting officer title of a publicly traded company? So I would say, you know, you need to have diversity in what you do. So you can't just be a financial reporting guy, right? You've got to understand... Uh, how the other parts of the business work. So even to a certain extent, uh, taxes. Taxes is, is under my watch, and I'm, I'm not a tax expert. I can know just enough to do you know dangerous things with tax, but I have really bright people that are my tax accountants. And but it's just a matter of managing them. So you got to at least be able to speak that language. You got to understand IT. Uh, you know, IT's building blocks for everything we do, and you can't operate without IT. And I think in today's uh, world with you know colleges, I think they do a really good job of training people up on what mainframes are, and you know it's no longer the ES four hundred; it's Oracle implementations and all these things that people are getting the advantage of. That wasn't that way when I when I started. Um, you know, IT didn't really become a 
a feature, and I'm not that old, but <laughs> until probably the 2000s is when it really became a, a focus where the audit team had to really understand that. So, you know, I guess the point is, as chief accounting officer, you want to try to get as many things as you can. Um, Treasury is another area you want to understand. You don't have to be an expert at any of these, but you have to know enough to, to speak the language, ask the right questions if you don't, and, you know, rely on the people that you have that, that have those skill sets. Do you think you could come up through tax and eventually become a chief accounting officer? Sure. Certainly you could. Uh, you know, the tax people are, are bright. It's not the usual route. You know, I would say, you know, two out of 10, maybe, you know, you can't do it, but it's definitely not the, it's not the, the, um, really the highway to get there. Gotcha. But audit is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What you said about audit, as far as you're, you're talking to the leaders of the company and what keeps them up at night, that's, that's the way to learn the business Yeah, exactly. from the top down. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Well, if you can believe it, uh, our time has flown here. Wow. And we've we've covered a lot, and you've given us a lot of of great insight into the accounting world, and I really appreciate that. And so, if people have additional questions for you, uh, how would you suggest that they go about reaching you? Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, um, and Paul Bigby. You can you can find me there, and be glad to. Uh, have any questions that uh, you come across or things you want to talk about your career, feel free to, to just drop me a line there. Fantastic. I as well, as a recruiter, live on LinkedIn. It's one of the first apps I open in the morning, uh, for better or worse, and you can find me on there. You can also Google Chad Dean Integrated Management, and I've finally come up number one on there. <laughs> so thank you very much, Google. And uh, so that's it. And I appreciate everybody listening to this episode of Financial Footsteps. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Financial Footsteps, Candid Conversations with Financial Leaders. We encourage you to apply the knowledge and wisdom shared in these conversations to your own career. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Your feedback is important to us as we continue to bring you more candid conversations and thought-provoking insights from successful financial leaders. 